You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come not on our merit, not because we've cleaned ourselves up enough to make ourselves worthy before you. We come only because of the mercy of God in Christ who has paid our debt for sin. So we come humbly and eagerly and expectantly before you in the name of Jesus. And we ask that you'd help us to continue to worship you even now as we open your word, that we would see you for who you are, that we would uh, exalt in the truth of who you are, and we'd worship you with gratitude and with joy. Speak to us through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, Good morning, River City. Uh, Glad to be with you this morning. We're continuing our series in the little book of Jude. So you can turn to Jude in your Bibles, and some folks will be coming around and can get you a Bible. If you do not have one, you can slip your hand up and they can get you one so you can follow along. Our theme for this whole series, Lord willing, will be in Jude about five weeks. We're right in the middle of that. This is our third week. And our theme for this whole series for the book of Jude is this, that Jude is a call to contend for the faith by exalting in the truth, rejecting what is false, and holding fast to our faithful God who holds fast to us. Let me say that again. Jude is a call to contend for the faith by exalting in the truth, rejecting what is false, and holding fast to our faithful God who holds fast to us. This is the the framework, the umbrella under which all of these individual kind of sections kind of sit. And Jude opens, as we talked about two weeks ago, reminding followers of Jesus of their identity in Christ. Jude says, to the called, to the beloved, and the kept by God in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Last week we looked at Jude giving his reasoning for writing. I wanted to write to you, he says, to talk about our shared faith, but instead I found it necessary to write to you about some concerns. He's warning that false teachers have crept in among them. And so his encouragement is to be discerning because those who are false, their end is is destruction. And today, the portion we're going to look at today We'll be looking at more closely. Jude is encouraging his readers, and by extension, encouraging us to remember. And this is going to be the largest chunk of Jude we'll take all at once. So specifically, Jude is saying, remember how God has dealt with ungodliness and unbelief and wickedness in the past. Remember that. Because if God is unchanging, which he is, 
then we can be sure that God will always deal with all ungodliness and all wickedness, always acting in perfect righteousness and justice forever. So remember, this is how God has dealt with evil in the past. Because if he is indeed unchanging, this is how he'll deal with it going forward. Now we're going to get into that a little bit more, but before we do, let's read the text from Jude. Again, we're, we've been doing this uh, regularly because it's only 25 verses. Let's read the whole text of the whole letter of Jude <clears throat> together and then we'll dive in. I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles as well. Hear the word of the Lord this morning, the letter of Jude. <clears throat> Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt 
Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is God's word for us today. Now, last week, we looked at Jude's warning. Verse 4, there are counterfeits among you, so be alert. Essentially, practice discernment that we might strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to, as Charles Spurgeon says, and we quoted him last week, to know the difference not just between right and wrong, but the difference between right and almost right, so that we might be able to walk in the light of the truth. And then where does Jude go from there? He says, now, in light of the warning I just gave you, I want to remind you of some things that are true about God. And I think Jude does this. He shifts to this reminder because I think he knows that his readers, like us, are prone to a couple of, I'll say just human realities, forgetfulness and fear. Because we're prone to forgetfulness and fear, aren't we? Uh, work that backwards. Fear is on display that when we look at a verse like verse 4, that certain people have crept in unnoticed, that, that might, what well up in us is a little bit of, oh no, <laughs> there, there's counterfeits among us, there's fakes among us, what do we do? And we go on high alert, maybe even thinking suspiciously of the people who are sitting around us. Like, is it you? Are you the fake, right? The, the, the alarms go off and the fear and the anxiety might creep up. We get a little nervous. Or our forgetfulness is on display. We look at the world around us. We look at evil and wickedness and all that goes around and we're like, what is happening? And we're overwhelmed by the cares of the world to such a degree that we forget that none of this is a surprise to God. That he sits enthroned as Lord and King over the cosmos and over all of time. And so humans sin against human and and wickedness and war and strife and, and none of this is, is surprising to him. But we forget that. In fact, this goes all the way back to the very beginning when Satan convinced Adam and Eve that maybe God was not telling them the truth and they said, yeah, maybe he's not. And unbelief set in. From that point forward, none of this is a surprise to God. God has seen wickedness and rebellion and evil. It's been on full display nearly since the beginning, and God has always dealt righteously with mankind. Always. He doesn't let evil slide. He doesn't ignore injustice. God always deals in perfect righteousness and justice, and yet we kind of forget that because we are short-sighted and limited, and we're overwhelmed by what we see all around us. And so Jude gives us this great reminder, although you and I are prone to forgetfulness and to fear, I think Jude's saying this, and here's our big idea for the text this morning. Because God is unchanging, we can be sure that he will always act in perfect justice. Because God is unchanging, we can be sure that he will always act in perfect justice. It was Winston Churchill, prime minister of Great Britain, who said in a speech he gave before Parliament in 1948, a pretty famous quote, you might have heard it, those who do not learn from history or learn history are doomed to repeat it. Now, Churchill likely stole that phrase or borrowed it from 
Spanish philosopher George Santayana, who in 1905 wrote this, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. So whether he stole it or borrowed it, made it his own, doesn't really matter. The meaning is the same, and the point, I think, is helpful for us. History has something to tell us both about the present and the future. And that's part of what Jude's getting at here. So when Jude 5, he says this, I want to remind you, he's saying, remember. And you'll see it down in verse 17. We'll look at it more next week where he says, but you must remember. Jude is saying, don't forget there's history here. There's history of God's work in the universe and particularly in human history. And so then he takes the next number of verses and starts to unpack that history that God's people would know to remind them, to call them to remember, to not forget, so that in their remembering, they might overcome their fear so they can live and walk, not in fear, but walk by faith. So let's look at the first one. We'll find it in verses 5 through 10. Jude says, don't forget that God has dealt with the corrupt. God has dealt with the corrupt. Remember, verse 4, there's those who've crept in. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. They deny the authority and lordship of Jesus. And now he gives three examples of that. If you haven't picked up on this in reading Jude, Jude likes to work in threes. Not in every scenario, but he's got a lot of groupings of threes. Probably because it's helpful for him to remember, helpful for me to remember. Jude likes triads. Maybe you saw this. To those who are called, beloved, and kept. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And so here he opens with a grouping of three examples of wicked, rebellious people in history and how God dealt with them, or groups of people. And so he, he gives these three examples. Those who were in slavery in Egypt but who didn't believe God, fallen angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 5. I want to remind you, there's his don't forget, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, just as a quick aside, notice who Jude says rescued God's people out of Egypt? Jesus did it. Which is fantastic, by the way. Jude is reading back into the story of, of God in the Old Testament saying it was actually the work of the second person of the triune Godhead, Jesus himself, who is the rescuer of God's people. I just love how Jude just kind of... Like lays that in there. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards, he then also destroyed those who did not believe. So, so what's, what is he talking about here? To get here, we have to go back in history a little. Exodus chapter 3. God speaks to Moses from within a burning bush that is on fire, but it is not consumed. And God tells Moses, you're going to go to Egypt. You're going to liberate my people from under slavery in Egypt. They're under the hand of Pharaoh. You're going to liberate them. You're going to bring them out. You're going to bring them to this holy mountain. And then you're going to lead them to a land of promise that I will deliver to you. Now, there's a lot that happens in there. Fast forward to the book of Numbers chapter 13. They're on the edge of the land, ready to go in. And Moses sends in spies to the land because it's occupied now by others. And they're there 40 days. And after 40 days, the spies come back and they say, you guys would not believe this. The land is lush and beautiful and it is flowing with milk and honey. It is fruitful and we're not going in. 
because there are big, bad, scary people there and they will kill us. That's their report. Except for one, Caleb is like, yo, God actually said we could have this. We can overtake them. God is giving us this land. Now, Caleb's the only one. And the people end up listening to the other spies. And Numbers tells us that they grumbled against Moses, essentially grumbling against God. In fact, they come to the point of saying, maybe it would have been better for us to just, maybe we should just go back into slavery in Egypt. That might be better than just dying out here in the wilderness. Because of their unbelief in God and his promises, an entire generation is then cursed to die in the wilderness. Numbers chapter 14, verse 29. Here's what is recorded. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. This is the Lord speaking through Moses. Then you go down to verse 37. And the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. So the men who brought the bad report died by plague. The rest of the company of a generation, 20 years old and up, died in the wilderness. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. A year for every day they were spying in the land. Until their sons and daughters were old enough and then they took possession. So those who rebelled against God perished in their unbelief. They die in the wilderness And it was God's righteous judgment on that generation that it wouldn't be them, it would be their sons and daughters who would then enter the land of promise. It's the first example Jude gives. God has dealt with the unbelief of a generation of people. Here's the second he gives. Verse 6, Jude says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. Now this is an interesting little bit of scripture. Jude is likely referencing a traditional Jewish interpretation of Genesis chapter 6. And in Genesis chapter 6, we read of angels who go outside of their proper place and they mingle with humans, even creating children with human women, which just contributed to the wickedness and corruption that was already on the earth, leading to the destruction of the world with a great flood. If you read the, the sections leading up to that, the world was just ripe with wickedness and evil, man against man. And there was this contribution to the wickedness that would lead God to call out Noah to build a boat for his family that he might preserve them and wash the earth clean. Now, here's what's interesting about this. There are varying interpretations of Genesis chapter 6 and who exactly are the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. We're not going to really go there today because that's not Jude's point, but let me just give you a reference point. Is it a reference to fallen angels, which is actually a pretty common interpretation among scholars? Fallen angels who mingle with humans, um, that's a pretty common interpretation. There's also another that references the distinction between the descendants of Seth, kind of a godly line that came out of Seth versus an ungodly one that came out of Cain. We'll talk about Cain here in a minute. And there's super interesting things we could debate about that. I'm not interested in debating that today. If you want to talk about that, we can talk about that. But that's not Jude's point. Jude's point, pastorally, the point I think Jude's trying to make is like, it doesn't matter that they're angelic hosts. God deals with the rebellious. And so he deals with even the angels who rebel against him. He deals with them. 
And it, says, and it says specifically, he deals with them by placing rebellious angels in eternal chains until the judgment of that great day. Meaning that the day when Jesus returns with fire, with a sword to judge the earth, is the day that those rebellious angels will also stand before God in judgment. God dealt with the rebellion, even of angels. His own people in the wilderness who were unbelieving, uh, angelic hosts who rebelled against him, created beings who still rebelled against their creator. That's the second example. And the third one, verse 7, he says, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament are kind of the poster children for sexual immorality and rebellion against God and his created order. Because notice what, they, what he says. They indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. So, so notice, it wasn't only sexual immorality, a, a rebelling, a, a pushing back against God's commands for proper and healthy and holy sexual expression, but also what Jude calls unnatural desire. So they weren't just rebelling against God's commands. They were rebelling against God's created order itself. And Genesis 13 says that the, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Just the, the snapshot of, of who he's talking about here. And when you get all the way, fast forward a little bit to Genesis 18 and 19, you can read that because the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah just continued to grow and grow and grow, God turned their city to ashes. The Lord rained down sulfur and fire from heaven. And the next morning, when Abraham gets up, to pray. And he looks down into the valley where Sodom used to be. Genesis 19, 28. Behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. It was gone. And so I, so I think Jude is giving these three reminders, these little bits of, of, of Hebrew history to remind his readers, hey, don't forget, God has always dealt with wickedness. And he's always dealt rightly with it. Look at verse 8. <clears throat> in like manner. So here, and Jude does this multiple times in this passage. He ties these uh, interlopers, these counterfeits, these false teachers who snuck in among you. He ties them to these histor their historical counterparts. So he says, in like manner, these false teachers... They do the same sorts of things. And he says, relying on their dreams, meaning they're convinced in their own minds. They're not relying on God and his word, but they're relying in themselves. And then he says they do three things. They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme against the glorious ones. They do the same things that God's people did when they rejected God's promise in, uh, coming out of Egypt. They do the same things that the angels did as they rebelled against God and left their proper position. They do the same things that Sodom and Gomorrah are up to when they reject God's instruction in his created order. So notice Judas tying these false teachers to these historical realities. And then you'll see in verse 9, Jude includes a story that you will not find in the Old Testament that you have in front of you. Jude says, the archangel Michael, who's one of the few angels in the Bible who's given a, a proper name that we, that we have, argued with Satan about the body of Moses. Now, if you go into Deuteronomy chapter 34, this is going to be a little nerdy history, but go with me here. Deuteronomy chapter 34, we read that Moses gets called by God up to Mount Nebo, and he's able to look out and see into the land, the valley 
of the land of promise, where God's people are going to settle. And God tells Moses, they're going in and you're not. Deuteronomy 34 tells us that Moses dies. And it also tells us that the Lord himself buried Moses' body somewhere in the valley and nobody knows the place of his burial. And so Jude gives us this story about Satan and the archangel Michael fighting over the body of Moses. Jude is actually referencing a story from a book. It's not even really a book. It's like a page, but a, a book not in the Bible, but it would have been very familiar to Jewish readers of his day. The book or the writing is called The Assumption of Moses or The Testament of Moses. It's It's part of a collection of Jewish apocryphal writings. Apocryphal meaning it's unknown or disputed in terms of its origin. For example, and here again, one layer deeper in the nerd. Here we go. The only manuscript that that we have about or of the Testament of Moses is a single 6th century Latin translation of a Greek text which they think was originally written in Hebrew. So just... That, that's what we have in terms of like historical documentation of this particular writing. But, but many Jews of the day would have counted this amongst other significant historical documents and probably would have believed this portion of the story. And this little book says that the devil came and wanted to take Moses' body, but the archangel Michael steps in and says, no, you can't have it. And we'll talk in a little bit more Uh, in a second when we get to a larger section here about why Jude might quote a non-scriptural text, why this is important. Because we'll get to another one in just a couple minutes. But, But here's the point. Jude is saying that even the archangel Michael, who is an angel with an authority amongst the ranks of angels, even he doesn't say to Satan, I rebuke you. Even Michael, who is like angel of angels, says, the Lord rebuke you. So Jude's whole point in this is just to remind them, it's the Lord who will deal righteously with all who act wickedly, with all who rebel against him. We'll come back to these non-scriptural sources here in just a moment. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, then Jude kind of describes the end result for the wicked. He says, they are like unreasoning animals, They're destroyed by their own devices. They willfully choose and celebrate wickedness. And in their wickedness, in which they celebrate, it is slowly destroying them. Essentially, they are reveling in their own destruction. Woe to them, he says. Now remember, Jude is saying God has always dealt with the corrupt. That's his first reminder. And here's the second. God hasn't only dealt with the wicked in the past. He's even dealt more harshly with those who lead others astray. That's the second point. He deals with the corrupt and even more harshly he has dealt with those who corrupt others. This is where we get that. Woe. Woe to the false teachers among you. And then Jude ties them to how many more stories? Three. Three more Old Testament examples. I love it. Thank you, Jude. Being consistent. Three more Old Testament examples, not just of the wicked, but of those who corrupt others. He gives the examples of Cain, of Balaam, and of Korah. Briefly, let's look at these. 
First, they walk in the way of Cain. What is the way of Cain? You have to go back to Genesis chapter 4 to read the story of Cain and his brother Abel, sons of Adam and Eve. Cain's offering to the Lord was not acceptable, and his brother Abel's offering to the Lord was acceptable. And Cain, rather than contrition, rather than humility before God, he burns with anger. He is jealous of his brother because his offering was rejected and, Cain, and, and Abel's was accepted. And in his rage, murders his brother and buries him in the ground to hide his body. So the way of Cain, at least, is the way of jealousy and rage. And in fact, an entire city that Cain builds and a line that comes from him is marked by this. It is the hating of and the seeking to tear down all that is good and beautiful. And it's a willingness to inflict that on others in the process. Second, who is Balaam and what is his error? It says they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam, actually a really fantastic Old Testament narrative story. If you don't know about Balaam, I'm going to give you a little preview today, but you should read Numbers 22 through 24 just for fun this week. The Hebrew people were growing in number. The king of the Moabites was afraid of them. If they continue to grow, they're going to be a threat to us, and I, we will not be able to overtake them. So what he does is he goes to the king of Moab, goes to Balaam and says, hey, I will pay you money, cash money, if you will curse Israel. Because if you pronounce a curse on them, I might stand a chance. We might stand a chance to overtake them. But Balaam was unable to curse Israel because the Lord wouldn't let him. In fact, as Balaam is on his way to meet with the king of Moab, he's riding his donkey. That's the preferred mode of transportation. He's on, he's on his donkey on the way to meet the king of Moab. And an angel of the Lord is sent to block his path. But Balaam couldn't see that angel. But number says the donkey could. And so the donkey sees angel, flaming sword, danger, turns off the path. It turns off the path three different times. And Balaam gets so upset that his donkey keeps walking off the road that he beats his donkey. He just whips, whips him. And the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey to rebuke Balaam. The donkey speaks a prophetic rebuke against the prophet for not listening to God which is crazy. And the, the angel literally says to him, when he opens Balaam's eyes so then he can like see the angel, the angel tells him, if it wasn't for your animal, you would be dead. So the donkey had more wisdom than the prophet. Now, Balaam does end up making his way to the meeting with the king of Moab and he tries to get him to, to, to pronounce a curse. I will literally pay you if you can curse Israel. And it's hilarious because every time Balaam opens his mouth to curse Israel, only blessings come out of his mouth. He can't physically do it. The Lord won't allow him. And every time he does it, he upsets the king of Moab even more. Like, you just bless them again. He's like, I know, I can't help it. So he leaves. He goes back home. No reward, no cash, no nothing. However, here's Balaam's error. He knows that he cannot curse God's people with his own mouth. 
But he tells the Moabites, you, I can't curse them, but you can get them to bring down curses on themselves if you draw them into idolatry and sin because God will punish sin. Balaam knew that. And so he tells that to the Moabites. And you know what they do? They send idols and gold and women into the Israelite camp to lure them into sin. And it works. And the people of Israel fall into idolatry and sexual sin and greed. And the Lord judges that sin. And he gets paid. 24,000 fighting men are killed by plague because of their sin. And it weakens God's people. Balaam was greedy and he was willing to manipulate others for personal gain. That's Balaam's error. Third, Korah's rebellion. Numbers chapter 16. A man named Korah rallied a few others to kind of stand with him in rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And, and in fact, he recruited 250 more prominent men from Israel, well-known men from amongst the people. So not only is he in rebellion, he's brought others into his little rebel party. And Korah and the others stood against Moses, kind of a showdown, okay, corral style, toe-to-toe. -to -toe. The 250 men are, are burning incense as an offering to the Lord, just convinced that the Lord will be on their side, not on Moses' side. And here's what Moses says, okay, standing in front of these men, Korah and his men and the 250, he says, here's how you'll know if the Lord has sent me. If these men all die as men die, then you'll know that the Lord has not, has not sent me. But if the Lord opens the ground and swallows them and they go into, alive into Sheol, alive into the grave, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Here's Numbers chapter 16, starting in verse 31. And as soon as Moses finished speaking all these words, the ground on them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belongs to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their cry for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Jude is drawing on language that he's used earlier. These false teachers have crept in. Look what he says in verse 12. These false teachers, they are hidden reefs. This is a boating illustration. I do not have a boat, but I've been on a boat. What happens if there's something just under the surface that you can't see? It's a problem. That's risk of shipwreck. And that's what he's saying here. These false teachers in your midst, like Korah, like Cain, like Balaam, they're not only ruining themselves, they are shipwrecking the faith of others. They are hidden reefs just under the surface. And then he continues and he gives some word pictures of what these false teachers really are. He says they are shepherds who feed themselves. They, they don't feed the flock. They're feeding themselves and they feast actually on the flock. He says they're waterless clouds swept by the wind. They promise water and refreshing, but they leave everyone thirstier than they were when they started. They're waterless clouds. And he calls them fruitless trees. They are dead. 
They have no fruit whatsoever. They're good pretty much only for the burn pile. Then in verse 13, he says, their shame is on display like the waves of the sea. They wander. They wander from the truth. And whatever light they had is like a black hole that just consumes any light by utter darkness. Jude is saying, remember, God has always dealt with the wicked and he has always dealt with even greater harshness with those who corrupt others to join them in their wickedness. Their end is destruction. Finally, Jude's third reminder we see starting in verse 14. God will deal with all unrighteousness once and for all. He has dealt with wickedness and corruption. He's dealt with those who corrupt others. And one day, he will deal a final blow once and for all. And in verses 14 through 16, Jude quotes a prophetic word, a judgment found in a book. Again, book is a generous term. It's like a page called First Enoch. Now, we know a little bit about the person of Enoch. Jude says he is seventh descendant from Adam. Here's what Genesis 5 tells us about Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. As an aside, there's two individuals from the Old Testament that we know of that didn't die of natural causes. One is Elijah, who was taken up in a whirlwind into the heavens. That was a pretty cool visual. And the other is Enoch, who walked with God and then was not, is what Genesis 5 says. And God took him. That's what we know about this man named Enoch. He walked with God and then he wasn't. But here in verses 14 and 15, Jude is quoting from this extra-biblical source called the book of First Enoch. And the book of First Enoch is part of a, a collection of writings, this is a $15 word, called the Pseudepigrapha. You don't have to know that. But these are books and writings that are ascribed often to ancient patriarchs like Enoch, but were very, um, <clears throat> very likely composed not way back at the beginning with Enoch, but were probably composed way closer to the time of Jesus. In, in this case, very likely, even in that intertestamental period between the prophet Malachi and then 400 years of God being silent, there's still people writing about stuff, likely even in that time period when, when many of these writings were written. And so it's, it's actually unlikely that Enoch himself penned this, even if maybe he did see, have some things that he spoke way back when he lived for 365 years. Further, the book of Enoch is not considered scripture, even according to ancient Jews. There, and there is no majority group of Christians in history that has argued for first Enoch to be considered scripture. So the question is, why does Jude include it here? Why does he quote from a book like first Enoch or the writings of the Testament of Moses? Well, I think there's at least two possible reasons. One, First Enoch, like the Testament or the Assumption of Moses, would have been well known to Jews of Jude's day. There were many other writings that gave sort of commentary, if you will, on Old Testament text. So if you want to look at First Enoch as a commentary of sorts, I think that's not a bad way to look at it. 
Because commentaries on the scriptures are helpful insofar as they align with scripture. But they're not the same as scripture. We just need to be clear on that. Nonetheless, it would have been a familiar and important text that Jude's readers would have known and understood immediately. Second, this is not the only place in the New Testament where in the Bible, in, uh, both new and old, where the inspired authors cite texts not found in other places in Scripture to communicate truth about God. Let me just give you one example that's probably relatively familiar. Paul does it numerous times. Here's one. Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens. And he's addressing a very spiritual and a very pagan people. They have gods for everything. Everything, literally hundreds of them in little statues and idols all over. And they, in fact, just to make sure they cover all their bases, they set up a statue to an unknown God. In case we didn't name one that we should have named, this one kind of covers all the ones that we've missed. And Paul says, I see you people are very spiritual. And you have this statue to an unknown God. Let me tell you about him. The one you've failed to recognize is Yahweh, the God who created the heavens and the earth, who does not dwell in a temple that human hands make. And then Paul goes on to quote a pagan Greek philosopher and poet, Epimenides. And Paul says this, he, God is not far from us, for, and here's his quote, in him we live and move and have our being. And that's attributed to the Greek poet Epimenides. And Paul says this is true about God. So, so, so I just want to be clear. Scripture, God's inspired, infallible, perfect word, is not afraid of drawing out truth even from unlikely sources like Greek pagan philosophers or donkeys. So, so Jude here quotes from, from Enoch, 1 Enoch, verses 14 and 15 are, are quote from that, that uh, pseudepigrapha, that, that uh, kind of un unknown text. He says this. Here's, his, here's what he says. Here's his prophetic word. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude is saying something. Enoch, first Enoch is saying something that is absolutely true. That there will be a future final day of the Lord's judgment. And what's interesting is that first Enoch in this little section is quoting about a half a dozen Old Testament passages that say that same thing. Here's just a couple of them. Zechariah chapter 14. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, all the holy ones with him. Zechariah is speaking of the coming future judgment of the Lord. Isaiah 66, for behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Isaiah chapter 66 verses 15 and 16. So 1 Enoch, and at least the part that Jude is quoting, is emphasizing and making a legitimate biblical reality point that when the Lord comes, 
He will bring judgment on all who lived and spoke in ungodly ways in rebellion against him. He's saying something absolutely true. And then, and then Jude says, these, verse 16, these, he's saying these people. Who are these people? The same these people from before. These who have crept in, those who are hidden amongst you, these false teachers and counterfeits, he says, they're grumblers. Just like Israel was grumbling against God in the wilderness. They're selfish. They're grumblers. They're malcontents. That's a word we should bring back into our vocabulary. Malcontents. They are never satisfied and rebellious. Their lack of satisfaction is devious. They're malcontents. They follow their own sinful desires. That one's pretty obvious. Their God is their belly. They do whatever they please. They are loud mouth boasters. Meaning... They are bold in the rebellion. They're proud of their sin. And they entice others to join them in their folly. They show favoritism to gain advantage. They show partiality, which the Lord despises. They flatter people who will benefit them so they can gain their favor. They give bribes and they take bribes. They buy influence and they sell their credibility. And they are counted, Jude says, as those among those who will stand before God in judgment on that day when he comes again in terror and glory. But the question is, what do we do with a passage like this? I've already taken more time than I was planning. Because I want this to be, we, we want this to be more than just a lesson in Old Testament history, although it is kind of like drinking out of a fire hose of Old Testament history. For that, I apologize. Welcome. Um, but what do we do with this? Remember, I think Jude's pastoral uh, focus here is to encourage us to not fear that the wicked might get away with the evil that they're perpetrating. Remember, God doesn't let injustice stand. He always has dealt perfectly with injustice in the past. And because God is unchanging, the theological term is immutable, God is unchanging and immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because he is, then we can be sure that if he was faithful to act with full justice in the past, he'll be faithful to act in justice in the future. And so even if he doesn't open up the ground and swallow the wicked in front of us in some massive, like, real-time display, which maybe would be helpful sometimes to see, we know that he will bring about full and final and perfect justice. And so here in this are two things. The so what's, if you will. There is both a caution and a gospel hope laced in this passage. Here's the caution. Notice how the counterfeits are identified. All the things he says about them, they're not identified by their theological positions. They are identified by their lives. And this is the caution. One writer for the Bible Project says it this way. How you live is the most reliable indicator of what you actually believe. So the false among them say they believe the right things. They look the part. They might even smell the part. And yet, you peel back the layer and look at the fruit of their lives And now Jude's saying, it's obvious. The fruit of falsehood is a distorting of God's grace. He says it in verse 4. 
It treats grace as an excuse to sin. And it's a rejection of God's authority and the pursuit of anything else to satisfy what can only be satisfied by Jesus. It's idolatry. And we've got to remember, Jude's writing here to Christians, right? He's saying, hey, you Christians, you true Christians, you beloved and called and kept, I'm writing to you. But you have to know that because Jude's already told us that the counterfeits are there in the room as Jude's letter is being read. And you have to know this serves as a warning to them that they're sitting there fully aware of their own wickedness, kind of hiding in the shadows, probably with eyes going, I think he's talking about me, right? That's the caution and the warning that Jude is, is, is leaving here for us. Because you can fool me. I'm probably easy to fool. But you can't fool God. God will always act in perfect justice and he will always deal with all ungodliness. That's the, that's the caution that I think is here in this passage. But it's not just that. It's not all heavy and judgment. Here's the gospel hope. To you who are called, beloved, and kept, God will always act in perfect justice, which if you are in Christ, this is remarkably good news for you. And here's why. Because none of us deserves anything other than God's righteous judgment. And yet, God in his mercy makes the unrighteous righteous. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, God's righteousness is ours through faith in Jesus. That is, righteousness, God's perfection, the not guilty, is available through faith in Jesus for all who believe. That's what Paul says. Romans 3, starting in verse 22. For there is no distinction, Paul says, zero distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Comma. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Meaning that God made payment for our sin and the payment was the blood that Jesus spilled in his death on the cross. Paul continues, why? All of this was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance, that is his patience. I'm so glad he has divine patience. He had passed over former sins. The, the temporary placeholders for covering your sins were holding the position until the time of Jesus, verse 26, to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, here's the kicker, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is perfectly just in his judgment of the wicked and God is perfectly merciful in his judgment of Christ for our sin so that you and I might no longer be judged as wicked but might stand as righteous and clean before God. That's the gospel hope because our sin then isn't overlooked it's not ignored it is dealt with it is paid for and it is buried in the ground never to be resurrected god is just and the one who justifies those who have faith in jesus so we don't need to fear that wickedness will get away, will win in the end, because it won't. 
And we need not fear that we will be lost in the end. We'll get to this more when we get to the end of Jude because God is able to keep his beloved. So to counter our fear, we remember that because God is unchanging, we can be sure that he will always act in perfect justice. Let's pray.